And you are tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org. Stay tuned for WPKN's Mic Check coming up right now. Welcome to Mike Check, which comes to you every Sunday at 5.30 p.m., just before the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Richard Hill. Mike Check is a program that deals with global, national, and regional issues and explores their impact on our local communities. Each week we have a different host with a different issue, a different topic. This is uh, my week, second Sunday of the month. And uh, today we're going to be uh, speaking with a special guest, Cheryl A. Palmer, who's going to join us in just a moment. And we're going to be talking about the Bridgeport education system, the public education system in Bridgeport, the problems endemic to that system, what we know about it, how long it's been going on, and what we can do about it. So I'd like to welcome now Cheryl A. Palmer. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. Richard, thank you so much for having me as your guest. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, I just want to mention that uh, Cheryl is a programmer at WPKN. She's a host, the host of Speaking to Your Spirit, a show. When does that air, Cheryl? It's every second Saturday of the month from 4 until 7 p.m. Okay, that's great. And she's also a, uh, a mic check host. She takes the first Sunday slot, and uh, so we can tune in to hear her. Uh, the first Sunday of the month from 5.30 p.m. to 6. She is an advocate. She's an activist. She's an alumna of Southern Connecticut State University, and she has been focusing on the issue of education in Bridgeport, public education in Bridgeport, probably since she was a student. If I'm not mistaken, Cheryl, is that, is that correct? You, you were a student. You went through the Bridgeport public school systems. I was a product of the Bridgeport public school system and had no idea that the things that are going on now exist or still exist. It's been 40 years, four zero years that this um, dysfunction and these disparities have been going on and I'm just now becoming more in tune with them. So when you were going through them, you kind of said, this is, the, this is normal, this is my life. <laughs> I, I, I don't have anything to compare it with particularly. Um, and so now, 40 years later, what brought you back to look at the system as it exists and apparently has not changed in all those years? What brought you back to focus on it? Well, I started a fellowship earlier in March, um, which ran through July, with an agency in Bridgeport that addresses and advocates for parents and the children. And when I finished that in July, um, my alma mater, Southern, 
I had an opportunity with the public health department, Dr. Jean Brenny, to work with them on an issue. And because I was not yet finished with addressing the issues of the school system, I decided to continue on because our goal is to create legislation with the issues that we've, we've become aware of. We create the le legislation to take it up to Hartford and hopefully getting a bill passed to address because it just, it does not make sense to me. And I am a product, as you mentioned, I am a product of the Bridgeport public school system, uh, system where, you know, uh, mentors like Jetty Tisdale, Alexander Norwood, Ralph Council, Geraldine Johnson, I can go on and on. Um, they made it their business to be in our business. And that's where I feel like the village concept was really important back then. And nowadays, it no longer exists. It, it just, it's very sad, the issues that were uncovered. Let's start to go through some of those. Uh, what are the problems uh, in, in any order you'd like to present them with the Bridgeport school system? And, um, and how, let's say, how have they changed over the decades, it perhaps even become worse uh, by degree? And what, you know, what, what's the, the current status? Richard, even the basic needs are not being met for these children. Even their educational needs are not being met. I mean, we have uncovered things talking to parents and guardians and caregivers with something as, as important as the nutrition for the student, um, the social aspect, um, their IEPs and their 504s not being met, um, just non-compliance, parents not getting involved. So we can go on and on and on um, addressing these issues. They've gotten worse because there's no team effort. There's no village effort. Parents are not getting involved for whatever reason. They're passing the onus to the caregivers and the guardians. They're not taking a stance. Nowadays, we have younger parents who have really no sense of self. We have the more seasoned parents who are either not aware or don't want to be aware, but they're just not being involved. So again, it falls onto the child. And once the child takes things into their own hands, you know, they're not wise enough to make, um, or they're not seasoned enough to make the right choices. So when they make the wrong choices, they, they have to get, they get addressed with that. They either get put out or they get punished or something, but there's a correlation with all of it. So it starts essentially at home. All right. Well, it, there's also, I, I assume, problems with the system itself. For example, you mentioned nutrition. You mentioned, um, you didn't mention, but I, I've actually had conversations with other Bridgeport school activists, main, uh, actually high school students who are going through the, the system, about right. textbooks, about curriculum, about class size, about uh, outdoor space available to students for recreation. Can you kind of give us a, a picture of some of the shortcomings of the system beyond what the failure of the parents to advocate for these issues? Well, uh, as I mentioned, it had been in place for 40 years, and this COVID has revealed so many um, problems from the changes that were taking place from the ch child going from remote 
to in, in school, there's so many changes, there's so many inconsistencies, uncertainties, that they don't know what to do. A lot of the children were sent home when COVID began that had no MacBooks. When they received the work from the school, it was all about quantity and not quality. A lot of the parents who were responsible for now teaching the child had no idea about, as they've said, the new math. They weren't educated. They weren't informed about the style or the needs of the child or the learning environment. When a child had a 504 or a need for an IEP, when they changed the setting from school to home, it was not realized that they had to have a meeting with an administrator to change, to make the accommodations to meet those needs. That's not happening. A lot of the parents did not have Wi-Fi. So when they were sent home with these MacBooks, if they did not have Wi-Fi, the child fell behind. Even going back to nutrition, many times nutrition, um, may, the, the meals that the child gets at school might be the only meal that they get for the day. I had uh, one of the participants of the focus group show us pictures of the types of meals that the child was receiving. There was no nutritional value whatsoever. Um, the time that a child was allowed to eat the food wasn't enough time to digest and process, but it was all processed food, nothing healthy, nothing that the child would benefit from. So those are some of the things. And the most important part, I feel, is, is the social aspect. Sometimes the socialization that the child has in person is all that they get. So like I said in the beginning, their basic and their educational needs are not being met. You know, I read an article today in the New York Times where a child received a Zoom call from their teacher who was driving in the car. Another child received a Zoom call from their teacher who was sitting in a hammock. How can we enforce something when it doesn't seem like the teachers or the administrators are taking this seriously at all. What message are we sending to the children? It's almost like the adults don't want the child to do what they're doing. Can you tell us, just for those of us who are not familiar with the uh, sort of the, the weeds of the economic bureaucracy, what are IEPs and what are 504s? When a child has a challenge, whether it be ADHD, um, attention deficit disorder, or they have some type of learning disability, there are plans that are put into place to meet the needs. So when we mention larger classroom sizes, you have some students who need individual attention or they need their lesson plan structured a little bit differently. So these are things that are put into place to help the child to learn differently. I cannot tell you how many parents that I've spoken to personally who had, did not know that it should have been changed, changing the environment, nor were their child's needs, needs being accommodated even when they were in the school session. These teachers, um, from the stories I've heard, they, they appear to be um, burned out or tired. Whatever the case may be, the child is not being taken care of educationally. And for me, it all begins with education. So it's almost like when I think about the things that are going on now, 
it truly is a disparity, which is a health education or a public health concern. I think of systemic racism pipeline the prison, and they're being set up for failure because we address students who were minorities in the school system. When we did speak with others, I know um, the question was asked about comparing and contrasting. There was no comparison and contrasting. We were just receiving stories and then placing it in our mind that, wow, if you have a school that's less than 10 minutes from Bridgeport that are getting their needs met, whether it be a private school, a parochial school, or you know, a school in another district, it is possible that Bridgeport can have that, those same accommodations. Well, I think that's getting to the meat of the matter. Uh, so what are the reasons? I, I mean, I'm sure there are many, but what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a lack of funding? And I gotta say that Bridgeport is not unique in having major problems with meeting the needs of their students in terms of Bridgeport. There are, there are many other urban areas in, in our state, New Haven being one of them, Waterbury being another, Hartford, of course, being another. These are huge cities that have largely minority populations in their, in their schools. But, so, but Bridgeport, I, I, it's probably the largest, because I, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's one of the, it is, it may Bridgeport be the, large, the largest city. Largest city, in, okay. So it has probably the largest uh, school population. So where, where does, what's the, the choke point here in terms of the problem in Bridgeport? Is it, can it be met with more money being focused on Bridgeport for their education? I mean, we know that suburbs, because of the, the way they function with their taxes and the way money is allocated, they are able to have smaller class sizes. They have, you know, state-of-the-art learning, uh, you know, paraphernalia, books, uh, Wi-Fi, all, all, the, all the modernist, most modern things. What does Bridgeport need? Does it need money? Does it need um, a complete revamping in terms of its approach to education? Uh, tell us, what, what do you think? And by the way, we are speaking with Cheryl A. Palmer, who is a WPKN program host, and uh, we'll come back to her resume in a minute, but <laughs> tell, us, tell us, Cheryl, what, what, where do we start with this? Well, everything starts with funding, Richard. Um, when we, if, we, if we're gonna do a comparison, we can compare to Westport, Weston, Greenwich, where the parents are engaged, they contribute funding, they invest in their child, they groom their child. Why doesn't this happen in Bridgeport? My reason or my thought is, it's because either the parents don't know any, any differently, they choose not to do anything differently, um, funding, yeah, sure, it could be a major issue, but we need new leader leadership. We need new leadership. We need a new paradigm. It's like teaching an old system to a new child. These children nowadays are different. They are more creative. Um, they learn differently. So this paradigm that's been in place for 40 years needs to be revamped. Um, it's almost like we're expecting them to perform, but we're not providing them with the right tools. 
You know, we have the three styles of learning, the kinesthetic style, the auditory, and the tactile. Get rid of these standardized tests and meet these children where they are because they're only, they're only going, it's almost like they're just going through the motion. And when they get to a point where they have to make their own decisions to do whatever they decide to do, they're not going to have the necessary tools to make the proactive choices for their life. So let's talk about solutions here for a minute. We can come back to some of the endemic problems. And you mentioned systemic racism. We want to know how that plays out in this system. But in terms of funding, what role can the state play here now? We, we have a majority, supermajority, uh, Democratic-controlled House and Senate in the state of Connecticut. It was just increased in this, uh, on Election Day. Right. What, what can the state do, and how would that happen? Would it be legislation that was uh, crafted by your, uh, your representatives and senators in the Bridgeport area? Would it be grassroots activism that would lead to that legislation? And what would that leg legislation look for? Uh, I mean, look like, and and how it w would it actually provide solutions? I say all of the above. It needs to start um, with advocacy, um, and as I mentioned, that's our goal: is to create legislation to take up to the to the um, the house to take it up to Hartford. Um, it starts with more of a team effort. Everyone's involved, including the child, because they know what's best for them. Um, yeah, it, it just takes, it takes everyone to be part of it. My thought is I would go through every single school and start from the bottom up. Find out what the specific needs are and address those needs specifically. Because, again, um, there's just so much involved, and the parents don't have time not even to go to the PTA meetings. One of the suggestions for, from the, uh, um, the participants was to have someone, if you can't go, because, uh, go to a meeting or something involving your child, you send someone to represent you. The priorities are all wrong, and it's very frustrating because it's, it's, not, it's not helping the child to learn or to be structured. So again, what is it going to take? It's going to take funding. It's going to take the parents. It's going to take administration, the teachers, and everyone needs to be in the same room, room hearing the same thing. Because mm. it broke my heart. It broke my heart, and it sickened me to understand. And when I said before about the correlation, okay, with all these uncertainties with these children right now, the remote, the at-home, the school, they're becoming confused. They're going to lose interest. They're going to engage in other things, maybe not so favorable. And then, again, they are going to be punished or addressed, which is only going to send confusion. The message is only going to be confusing to them. And these are our future leaders. Speaking of leaders, let's talk about the leaders in the Bridgeport school system. You mentioned mm -hmm. systemic racism. What, mm -hmm. what's, what are the demographics of the the educational bureaucracy in Bridgeport. I mean, do we have um, black men, black men and women, and Latinx black, uh, black Latinx men and women teaching 
black and Latino students in the school systems? That is a great, great question. And this was actually uncovered last week. Richard, everything's by design. But by design, these students are being taught by individuals who don't live in Bridgeport, who aren't the same color, who don't have the same experiences. So when I raised the question, well, why aren't there teachers of color of the same race that can identify, it's designed that way. It's, it's, it's set up so that they don't have that identifying um, identifiable person where they can connect with. And that too saddened me. Now, when I was growing up in Bridgeport Public Schools back in the 70s, um, we had the village, we, as I mentioned, and a lot of the mentors and the people who, um, who were in charge, for me, it seemed like they were of minority race, but that's not the way the system design is designed, and it's very unfortunate because th these teachers and administrators can't identify with these needs of the children. They come from broken homes. They come from homes where they don't receive a meal. They come from homes where they have no support. Um, they come from homes where, you know, parent has to work two and three jobs just to keep a roof over their head. So a lot of times they are just left by themselves. And if you think that they're going to take that time to really learn, then we're sending a, a false message across the board. Can you give us a sense of the extent of the uh, virtual learning that's taking place, the Zoom classes? The, the Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, in other words, how, how, to, what percentage of students are actually in schools? How many days a week are they in schools? And how much time do they have to learn through some sort of remote uh, pro, uh, platform? Well, I personally think that the schools were, um, they should have stayed closed. Um, the children started with five days a week of learning. They had certain hours where they would attend. If they had any questions for the administrator or the teacher, um, they had certain hours that were allotted for the student to uh, address their concerns. I did meet with some teachers who went above and beyond, but again, that's just an individual choice. That's a preference of that individual. So we do have some good teachers out there. We do have some um, proactive administrators and teachers out there who are willing to go the extra mile, but then we don't. So then um, it changed from going hybrid, learning some at home, learning some at school. And as the cases of COVID increased, uh, it was suggested that schools will just be closed. Um, one of the um, one of the uh, one of the thoughts I heard was after Thanksgiving, school is going to be to totally remote. So now, what does this say? Now we have to have parents involved again. Many of them have lost their jobs, can't take off work. Um, many of them aren't going to engage in their child's learning. So it just sends a, just a really unfortunate message across the board. But this, for, from, from what I said, schools should have just stayed closed from the beginning. All right, so that sounds like a critical situation to me. So because as we know, the service industry, so many low paying jobs or, 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 or 
as they called them, front front line jobs. Right. Uh, many of those people have been laid off. They were, uh, they were collecting unemployment for a while, but now that is that is uh, that's been exhausted. We hope that a new care package will will be um, will be uh, in, implemented soon. But it sounds to me like there's a major crack up coming because if all those kids are now at home with their parents uh, trying to find work, either working or or you know, uh, unable to pay the costs of uh, their just the basic living expenses. Right. What's going to happen when we you go to full remote learning after Thanksgiving? Honestly, I, I can't answer that because of the uncertainties. We have nothing to go by. We have nothing measurable. We have nothing definitive. So if this is the case, Again, the correlation is it's going to lead to so many things, but they're not going to be favorable for the student. If the child stays home, the parent stays home, if unemployment is exhausted, if there's no stimulus check that comes out of this, then it's just it's, it's saddening to me. It's just very sad, saddening to me to know what the outcome is going to be. I don't have the answer, but it's going to start with new leadership. So if we ask for change, and now that we are receiving the change, we need to be more proactive in making sure that everybody is happy in the long run. So you said, now that we are receiving the change, quote unquote, are you in fact getting new leadership? Is the system being restructured? Is a new paradigm being adopted? And if not, how how will that come about how how can how will that uh actually um what will what will it require to make that happen well everything starts from the top so once we complete our research um hopefully our legislation that we create will be paid attention to um if we have to involve more people um and that's another point when we started this project, we reached out to the parents. We reached out and no one, no parent jumped on it. We had to extend it and reach out to guardians and caregivers of these children. Because again, the parents are putting the onus on others and not themselves. So it starts at the top. At the top. So we have new leadership that will be coming um, soon in January. How, how did so, that how did that come about, and who are those people? How did what come about? N- the new leadership that you were alluded to. Well, the new leadership starts with the new president. It starts at the top. I so see. Oh, see. Take, okay. Going if on. we take these concerns that we've uncovered and take them to the Capitol, and hopefully that they're really adhered to and paid attention to, we're being a voice of many voices. Because it's going to take, it's going to take a village to make this right. My question when I first went into this, Richard, was if this system has been dysfunctional for 40 years, four zero years, what can I do to make a difference? But you know what I said at the end? I am a product of the Bridgeport Public School System. Anything, everything is possible and just you have to you have to be about it. You know, we have to be proactive and make make the change. So it's gonna it's definitely gonna take a village. 
We're speaking on all levels. <coughs> Thank you, Cheryl. We are speaking with Cheryl A. Palmer. She's a WPCAM program host. She hosts the pre program Speaking to Your Spirit, which uh, runs, you said, second Saturday, I think, right? Every second Saturday from 4 until 7 p.m. Okay. And uh, she is also a mic check host, the very program you're listening to now. She hosts the very first Sunday of the month from 5.30 to 6 p.m. And she's an alumna of Southern Connecticut State University. I believe you're also a veteran. Is that correct? I am a veteran, yes. Wow. <laughs> that <laughs> That's a whole story in, in and of itself. Um, yeah, and that's another reason why I say, Richard, you know, I went back to school. I created my second half of my life in my late 40s. I went six years straight full-time, and I have two degrees. So for me, if anything is possible, but it all begins and ends with education, and you're never too young and never too old to learn. So who are the point persons that you will try to channel your advocacy through to take it to Hartford? Do you, are we talking specifically about your uh, House representative and, and senator that represent Bridgeport? Can you name names? Or do you have that focus yet? Or what's the strategy going forward? And by the way, we are down to the last uh, three minutes. <laughs> no, I should say... Right. Uh, last minute of our program, so we have to move quickly. Well, that's our goal, to collect the data from the, the um, caregivers and the parents and anyone who wants to be involved. We're going to take it up to Hartford and make a difference, and we hope that everyone is going to listen to our voices because we were part of it. We're not just, we're not just being about it. We're doing it. We're making a difference. Is there a contact that people can uh, go to to, uh, to if they want to participate in this effort? In this effort? Yeah, to, to, well, to help you with your advocacy and, and moving this thing forward. Well, if they want to reach out to me, that's fine. My email address is CherylAPalmer1 at gmail.com. But this project that I am working on with Southern Connecticut State University is funded by the Connecticut Health Foundation. So... Um, this right now is uh, a school project or um, a project that we're doing in-house, but anyone can become involved. Go to your PTA meetings. Go to the uh, Board of Education meetings. Go to the city council meetings. If you want to be about it, be about it because well, it takes a village. It doesn't even have to be about your child, but we're all in this together. Thank you so much, Cheryl. We've been speaking with Cheryl A. Palmer about the Bridgeport educational system, the public school system, some very interesting uh, analysis and uh, advocacy taking place right here on Mic Check at WPCAN in Bridgeport. Thanks for listening, and so, thanks so much, Cheryl, for, for being with us today. Uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. Great to have you. And coming up next is the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Richard Hill. Thanks for listening today to Mic Check. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman. Hello, David. Have you uh, been getting any sleep the last few days? 
No, this Wallace Berry marathon on Turner Classic Movies just kept me up all night. <laughs> well, I guess we have our own ways of coping. And we also have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. As we record this program on Thursday morning, November 5th, the results of the presidential election remain uncertain. But what is certain is that this election has been closer than many of us expected. Donald Trump won more total votes than any Republican nominee in history, something I'm sure he will be trumpeting for a long time. Despite everything this president has stood for and done, how could that possibly be? How come the Democratic Party could not landslide this obvious authoritarian malignant narcissist? What does this say about what American voters really care about? Is Trump's brand of nationalism here to stay? Why is there such a huge urban-rural divide? What does this say about how we even vote in this country? How come the United States of America, who bills itself as a paragon of democracy, is such a creaky Rube Goldberg machine of a voting system? These are all things we've talked about one way or another on the show before, but today we've invited the executive editor of the American Prospect, David Dayan, to help us sort through.